Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. The historian David Halberstam once wrote that if the first great business figure of the 20th century was Henry Ford, the second was a man named Bill Levitt. Levitt did something totally unglamorous. He bought up a piece of land in an area known for growing potatoes, Long Island. And in the late 1940s, he started to build small, affordable homes, homes that he knew returning veterans would want to buy. Louise Cassano's dad was a firefighter in Brooklyn when her cousins moved out to Long Island. That's when Cassano says her parents fell in love with the suburbs. They uh, saved up their $100 deposit to put down on the house. And actually, my mom had saved it without my dad even realizing what she was doing. She was kind of sneaking a few dollars here and there. Cassano and her family moved out to Levittown in 1951 when she was just a kid. And she's been there ever since. That generation really felt that owning their own home was the dream that they had uh, for their families, to be married, to have a family, and to be able to, to purchase their own home. You know, it wasn't specific to my parents. It was kind of the common thing that everybody worked toward and wanted to achieve uh, at that point in time. Bill Levitt watched the evolution of the American dream, and he knew he could capitalize on it. To meet demand, Levitt actually borrowed Ford's classic production technique, the assembly line. But since you can't really move a house down a conveyor belt, he moved the workers. At their height, Levitt's builders worked so quickly over the course of a week, they were averaging 16 minutes per house. And they built Levitt towns not just in New York, but also in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, and plenty of builders all over the country followed Levitt's lead. The suburbs have forever changed economics, politics, and culture. Lawrence Levy is the executive dean of Hofstra University's National Center for Suburban Studies, which is just a few miles away from Levittown on Long Island. He's also a former reporter for the Long Island newspaper Newsday. Larry, welcome to Innovation Hub. Well, thanks for having me. So how different was Levittown from what had come before? Very different. Uh, The suburbs, such as they existed, were hubs around uh, train stations Hmm. where people almost entirely commuted to the city and the businesses out there supported uh, those folks. Uh, It was rural uh, economy with agriculture, timber, fishing, uh, except for the people who commuted into the cities. Hmm. Did he expect, do you think, the suburbs or Levittown to be as popular as it was. He was a great businessman. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had a dark side, which I'm sure we'll talk about, Mm -hmm. but he knew that if he could produce homes that had eye appeal and utility, they would sell because the demand among uh, the GIs was enormous Mm -hmm. and it was fed by government policies, the GI Bill, that made cheap loans and uh, subsidized rentals available on a scale we just had never seen before. So let me bring in again the voice of Louise Cassano that we uh, heard from earlier. Uh, She moved to Levittown, as I said, when she was just a kid uh, in the early 50s, but she has stayed there ever since. And at one point, she got to interview Bill Levitt, um, and she talked to us about how residents felt about the Levitt family. The Levitts were kind of treated like gods <laughs> in this community because, because of the opportunity that so many people had to, for the first time in their lives, to own a home. 
And they did a wonderful job. When Levitam first started, the father, uh, Abraham Levitt, would go around and he would uh, check on everybody's shrubs, make sure that they were doing the right thing. And if they didn't, he'd knock on their door and say to them, you need to do this or you need to do that to (laughs) make things better. Or if people were not following the local ordinances of not hanging laundry out on a Sunday, he would knock on the door and say, you got, you know, you got to take the laundry down. It's today's Sunday. It's incredible to me that story she tells of like Abraham Lovett going around and being like, yep, you can't hang your wash out on Sundays or like that shrub is not up to code here. I mean, that on that micro level, it actually reminds me of a uh, Ray Kroc and and how he dealt with McDonald's and he would go around to McDonald's franchises and like pick up trash. I mean, he was the CEO. He didn't need to do that, but he did it. Well, Levitt did it in part because he wanted it to conform to his vision and he was a perfectionist. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was also a task master. Some people might use the expression anal retentive. Is that un- <laughs> improper for radio? <laughs> it's probably um, okay. Okay. But the fact is that he signed contracts with people, not only for a specific sized house at a specific price, but a lifestyle that would come with it. He promised there would be swimming pools within walking distance of every house. He also promised it wouldn't look like New York City. And for some people, that was a code word or a dog whistle for don't worry, there won't be uh, people of color there. It also meant there's not going to be laundry. There's not going to be the kinds of things that people who didn't like city streets were trying to get away from. Right, right. It was not the tenements that people had lived in in the city. That's right. Do you think there were skeptics that thought, like, you're buying potato fields in Long Island. Nobody wants to live there. There's no way you're going to fill up a community this way. The only uh, concerns that people had when they moved out was, where are the jobs? Uh And how do they get to the ones that they want to keep that were based in the city? And Levittown was not directly on a Long Island Railroad line. Long Island Railroad is the largest commuter rail in the country. Mm-hmm. And you have to drive a little bit to get there. And that's one of the problems that Levittown created for 50 years after the fact. But during the time it was being sold, uh, every home had a car. Uh, thanks to Henry Ford, right, they right. were affordable they, as they well. Worked I mean, together. They, no, they, these things absolutely worked yeah, together. Yeah. And in fact, it wasn't one plus one. It was the synergy of one plus one equals three and four. So the men almost entirely Mm. uh, either were driven to a train station by the wife Mm -hmm. or they drove into the city and uh, the wife stayed home and took care of the kids. And on Saturday, they all piled into the station wagon and and filled up on groceries. Uh, And that was the suburban way of life for many years uh, that fueled an economic boom that we hadn't seen for generations since the industrialization Mm -hmm. of the North. And it was great while it could last, Mm -hmm. at least for white people, but it also, uh, 50 years later, when tastes changed, when the number of automobiles that households were buying was clogging streets, uh, when the lack of affordability in homes was forcing or at least uh, incentivizing owners to chop up their little Levitt homes into an extra apartment right. to bring in revenue. It leaves us with a lot of problems nowadays. 
I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Larry Levy, the Executive Dean of Hofstra University's National Center for Suburban Studies. So I'm going to go back one more time to Louise Cassano from Levittown, and this is her talking about her sense of community when it came to diversity. Most of the people that originated in Levittown were um, white, Anglo-Saxons, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of Italians, a lot of Jews. And eventually, here and there, we started to see other cultures move into the community. Um, at first, they were so noticeable because they were so rare. But eventually, um, we started to see more and more uh, cultural changes. It was surprising at first um, because it was, it was such a white community. And those changes... Um, pleased some people and didn't please others. Uh, the New York Times once wrote that Levittown, uh, the houses there, were more than architectural creations. They were social creations. And what she's really talking about is like the creation of a certain kind of society. Why was that? Well, Levittown was a public-private partnership. I know we talk about that a lot, the three mm. Ps mm. for getting economic development going. But it was a partnership between a visionary business person and uh, government subsidies to make it happen. It was a suburban land of opportunity. The problem was it was only a land of opportunity for whites. It was not a matter of informal or personal racism by uh, this person or that person. It was written into the covenants, the lease right. and mortgage and deed agreements. And it took a United States Supreme Court decision, I believe in the 50s, mm. that finally put an end to that. Mm. So, you know, it's not the same as other communities. And for all the good that Levittown did and all the vision it had, and you, you got to give them credit for that. It also sowed the seeds for a lot of problems down the road. Mm. Uh, Long Island, for instance, may be diversifying, but it is no less segregated than it was. Mm. And the seeds of that were planted back in the 40s and 50s mm. and enshrined in law, mm. uh, or indeed rather, in Levittown. To your point of the seeds in some ways for the lack of diversity, that those seeds were planted early on, Bill Levitt, who you mentioned, you know, had a little bit of a dark side, um, he once said, this is a quote from him, the Negroes in America are trying to do in 400 years what the Jews in the world have not wholly accomplished in 600 years. As a Jew, I have no room in my mind or heart for racial prejudice. But I have come to know that if we sell one house to a Negro family, the 90 or 95 percent of our white customers will not buy into the community. That is their attitude, not ours. So there is somebody right sure. out there, like not sugarcoating <laughs> it, being like, this is the policy, as you said. And it was kind of written into it. Well, at minimum, you can say that Bill Levitt did not have the courage of what he claimed his convictions were mm -hmm. to take a financial and economic risk in trying something different. Um, is he right? Would 95% have stopped buying? Possibly, but not everybody would have. And if you don't give in to blockbusting and redlining and you don't cause panic and fear among owners where they stampede out and sell at a discount and slumlords buy up communities. If you take, make real efforts to keep that from happening, maybe it wouldn't have turned out as he uh, thought or feared it might. 
Well, what does it say to you? Um, and I mean, we're using Long Island as an example here, but but I'm guessing, and set me straight here if I'm wrong, we probably could be talking about lots of other parts of the country. I believe so. Uh, so what does it say to you that the suburbs have both gotten a lot more diverse, but then also are very, very segregated? I guess I just wonder what that says about Levitt's original vision that, like, really people don't want to live in the same neighborhood as people who aren't like them. Well... You know, there are debates going on about that. Um, Is there a degree of what is sometimes called self-segregation where a black family would prefer to live in a black neighborhood? I guess um, what we've seen a little bit more of, but not a lot, not nearly enough, is that if a black family does have money, there are more neighborhoods they can go into, but there are still plenty that they could afford where they can't realistically buy a home or feel welcome. Um, they can, but that you're saying they'd feel yeah, that's people the whole, wouldn't welcome them. Okay. That, that's what I was referring to yeah. when I talked about Levittown. Mm. Uh, there are plenty of black families that can afford homes in Levittown. Mm-hmm. They choose not to. Mm-hmm. They choose not to go through uh, what some of them consider the gauntlet. Uh, you know, they there are ghosts in that community to them, you know, ghosts of racism and exclusion and, and really dashed dreams. Imagine you're a black soldier who risked his life for as many years and as many times as a white soldier, mm-hmm. and you can't get to live or even buy in most places in these new suburbs. Right. Imagine what that felt like. And imagine the impact of being excluded from economic opportunity and the much more rapid gain in value of those homes in the white communities in terms of how it affects family wealth for generations. Uh, let's talk politics for a minute, because um, we live in a country where people often talk about there's a big rural-urban divide when it comes to how people vote. And it feels like this isn't really new, but it, it sure feels like it's a moment of this being uh, thrust into the spotlight again when the suburbs are the battleground. So if there's a rural urban divide, what's right in the middle there and literally geographically, it is the suburbs. And it is often said it's the Pennsylvania suburbs, the Ohio suburbs that decide elections. I wonder, do you think that is going to continue? And, and just talk a little bit about the power of the suburbs in politics. Back when my parents moved out in 1955, Long Island was overwhelmingly Republican. Uh, back when I started covering politics for Newsday in 1977, it was still overwhelmingly Republican mm-hmm. with a slight shift. Okay. Nowadays, it is majority Democratic. Really? As the suburbs become more and more racially diverse, and if the Democrats continue to get huge levels of support from people of color, the suburbs are going to be counted more as the cities are, which are democratic territory. So the swing areas are going to move a little farther out to what are now considered exurbs or outer ring. There have been books in the last few years, and I've talked to some of the authors here, um, called things like the end of the suburbs and the great inversion, the idea being that the suburbs, you know, people in the suburbs were moving back into the city. 
is there some truth to that? Is there something going on here, um, you know, that's new? Yes and no. There was a period, and in demographic history, it's a blip that tracked the Great Recession, where people were moving from the suburbs into the city. There was that inversion. But it's reversed. And more and more communities on Long Island, which used to be called the capital of nimbyism, and who knows, maybe it still is, not in my backyard <laughs> yeah, is. Yeah, right, exactly, right. right. Um, uh, more and more of these villages are embracing what we call smart growth or transit-oriented mm. development. And the more you see that happen, the more diverse you're going to see uh, the communities getting. You know, I think of the expression about the Samuel Clemens, uh, news of my death is premature. I think that people are saying the suburbs died are really, uh, it's either wishful thinking or a misunderstanding of data or drawing conclusions on age and other cohorts, as we say in, in academia, that are too short to declare a new era. Lawrence Levy is the executive dean of Hofstra University's National Center for Suburban Studies. Larry, thank you so much. Well, thank you for letting me talk on and on and on. Little boxes on the hillside. Little boxes made of ticky-tacky. Little boxes on the hillside. Little boxes all the same. Levy says that when the 50th anniversary of Levittown rolled around in the late 1990s, the Smithsonian wanted a real, original Levittown house to put on display. The problem was that the standard for housing had changed so much in half a century, the average American house had more than doubled in size, that most Levittown houses had been expanded and changed. 20 years later, the Smithsonian is still on the hunt. And be- 